attention, please. This is a piece of art. His Kryptonian biological makeup is enhanced by Earth's yellow sun. Doctor Doom wears body to conceal his own angled form. Worst episode ever. Why? Who shot first? Who gives a shit? It's what's called super nerd nitpicking over something that's not really that important. Welcome back to Trennis Magnus Punches Reality, presented by Two True Freaks. I'm your host, Magnus, and I've spent 99 episodes talking about comics, movies, and TV shows. I mean, I think about that sometimes, and it's kind of a mind job. You know? 99 episodes. And this entire time, I've never missed a week, I've never really been late with the show or anything else. I mean, I'm kind of proud of what I've managed to accomplish here. But yeah, 99 episodes. So, now seems like as good a time as any to steal an idea from Tom Panarese and tie in the episode's number with my subject matter. You see, I've not talked a whole lot about Star Wars movies very much on this show, and mostly that's because Star Wars is one of those nearly universal subjects that we all know about. We all developed opinions about it decades ago, so what more is there to say? But I realized I have an angle on the prequel films that I sincerely have never heard anywhere else before. I thought you guys might enjoy my take on The Phantom Menace because my view of it is that it's nowhere near as cut and dried as people want to make the movie out to be. And hey, Episode 1 came out back in 1999, and this is Episode 99. Now, I won't lie to you guys. This is actually my second pass at an Episode 99. The original 99th episode was about all three prequels. My rationalization for that was, this is Episode 99, so that relates to The Phantom Menace. This episode's also coming out in the summer of 2015, which is just in time for the 10th anniversary of Revenge of the Sith. So, I could have stolen a different idea from Tom Panarese and celebrated that 10th anniversary. As for Attack of the Clones, eh, call it a bonus conversation, I guess. But anyway, what I realized is that I need full-length episodes to talk about each film. So, that's what I'll be doing starting here. I want to take a look back at The Phantom Menace. Is it as horrifyingly bad as the haters would make you believe? Or is it the unappreciated masterpiece that the gushers proclaim it to be? Or does the truth lie maybe somewhere in the middle? Well, there's only one way to find out. Now, there's really no way to talk about the prequels without first talking at least a little bit about the original trilogy. Or, maybe there is, but that's not the direction I want to go in. Now, 
one of the inconvenient truths that Star Wars fans everywhere have to accept sooner or later is that the original Star Wars trilogy may be amazing, but it does not intentionally have all of those mythological underpinnings that George Lucas always talks about. Now, I realize that may go against the decades of propaganda that George has spent decades spoon-feeding you, but it's true. Let the record show that Lucas never did any serious study of myth or ancient storytelling until the 1980s, long after Return of the Jedi had come and gone from theaters. Lucas tr usually tries to conceal this fact, but his relationship with Joseph Can uh, Campbell goes back no earlier than the mid-1980s. Now, I say all this not to be iconoclastic. Or, not just to be iconoclastic. Instead, I'm bringing it up to show that George Lucas has a tendency to rewrite history, especially his own history, when it comes to Star Wars. There may be similarities between myth and aspects of the original Star Wars trilogy, but I submit to you that those things are a total coincidence. It seems that the chief influences of the original trilogy were fairly modern and recent developments, specifically the Vietnam War. George Lucas came of age during the Vietnam War, like millions of other people did, and the politics of the time shaped George's sensibilities the same as they would anyone else's. I don't think it's at all a coincidence that you can draw so many straight lines between some of the paranoia of the original trilogy and the times in which Lucas grew up. But that all relates to the original trilogy. When George Lucas set about creating the prequel trilogy, it was a very different situation. The prequels do have layers of myth intentionally inserted into them. This much is not arguable. Lucas had soaked in mythological influences from all of recorded history, and it's just not up for grabs that it shaped his perceptions of what the prequel trilogy ought to be. But the prequel films aren't just influenced by myth. They're also very clearly influenced by history. For the first time, Lucas broke away from what had been his usual approach to Star Wars by moving away from current events for inspiration and instead absorbing other sources. I say this because that's crucial to understanding several key elements of the prequels in general, and The Phantom Menace in particular. I think there are very clear influences at work through all the prequel films. The societal structures and institutions of the Renaissance with maybe a dash of the Gilded Age thrown in for good measure. The transition of the Roman Republic into the Roman Empire the French Revolution, the American Civil War, and maybe some other things too. The Phantom Menace was the key to unlocking all those things. Or at least, starting the process anyway. Now, it'd be inaccurate to say that I was a huge Star Wars junkie as a kid. I grew up watching the original Unaltered Trilogy, and I even enjoyed it. I loved the fun and action of Star Wars. And let me just put this on pause and say, I don't call that movie Episode 4 or A New Hope or any of that other bullshit. It's Star Wars to me. Anyway, 
I love The Empire Strikes Back, too, because of how it played around with the moral ambiguity of all the characters. To me, Empire's why I've never understood why people call the Star Wars saga good old-fashioned adventure stories with clear-cut good guys, clear-cut bad guys, cowboys and Indians where the heroes wear white hats and the villains wear black hats and good and evil are locked in mortal conflict with one another, just fucking blah 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 blah. I mean, yeah. That stuff's superficially true of the first Star Wars film, but starting with Empire, we're constantly confronting heroes with dark sides and villains with heroism. Nothing is what it seems in the Star Wars saga, and it just fucking blows my mind that people don't ever comment on this. Anyway, as to Return of the Jedi, I loved seeing Luke more or less as a full-fledged Jedi Knight, jumping around with his lightsaber, battling Darth Vader, and all of that shit. It's just a great fun time at the movies, and I love it. That said, though, I was not a huge Star Wars fan as a kid. I just didn't get why people lost their minds over it. The primary mythological constructs of my childhood were all superheroes. Back then, I got a lot more of a charge from seeing Clark Kent do a shirt rip or Superman soar through the clouds than watching a Jedi Knight battle a Sith Lord. That's how I felt as a kid, and to a degree, it's how I feel now. But the difference these days is I've got a much more tempered perspective on the whole thing, and the deciding factor in all of this change was, believe it or not, the Phantom Menace. Basically, a bunch of friends and I skipped a day of uh, our senior year in high school to go to the Phantom Menace debut. We ended up watching it twice in separate screenings, and for the first time, I understood why people went crazy for Star Wars. The Phantom Menace was the key to unlocking my Star Wars fandom because I finally understood the fascination that people have with these films. I was officially a Star Wars fan at that point. I was also a huge Phantom Menace fan. It felt like I was the only one in the room who saw the brilliance of that film, but there came a point when that changed. I eventually had occasion to maybe develop a different opinion, but I'll get more into that stuff later. But for now, very honestly, there are certain aspects of episode one that in my opinion are completely beyond criticism. We all watched the original trilogy and wondered what the Jedi Knights were like during their prime. And Episode 1 does a very good job of showing us what they were all about. Our first glimpses of Qui-Gon Jinn and Obi-Wan Kenobi don't disappoint. Almost right away, they start slicing up battle droids, dodging laser blasts, and flying around in starships. But after a while, we start to realize that Qui-Gon and Obi-Wan aren't always on the same page with one another. Qui-Gon's soft-spoken, wise, and patient. He's content to let events unfold as they need to. Qui-Gon believes the landing on Tatooine was the will of the Force, and his suspicions are confirmed when he meets young Anakin Skywalker. Qui-Gon's ultimately shown to be right. 
On the other hand, Obi-Wan's just a little bit headstrong and impatient. He wants to haul ass back to Coruscant, file his report with the Jedi Council, and move on to whatever his next assignment's going to be. Qui-Gon's tendency for detours and side trips seriously piss Obi-Wan off. Qui-Gon pretty much calls it during his first conversation with Obi-Wan in the film. Obi-Wan is just too focused on the future. His thoughts are never in the here and now. And because of that, Obi-Wan has a lot of trouble understanding the significance of what might be occurring all around him. For his part, Qui-Gon's content to let uh, events unfold and to let them lead him rather than to force events the way he wants them to go. So, right there, we see that these aren't just cardboard cutout characters. Each man has his own relative strengths and weaknesses, and to some degree, his own agenda. This stuff's interesting because it's a minor challenge to the way that we always thought the Jedi Knights operated. I think on some level, we all assumed that they were the super friends with lightsabers, but Qui-Gon's relationship with Obi-Wan challenges that. But our preconceptions about the Jedi Order are pretty much completely fucking decimated once the narrative takes us over to Coruscant, because that's where we meet the Jedi Council. Ensconced in the Jedi Temple, a literal ivory tower, the Jedi Council is filled up with pompous, self-satisfied bureaucrats. It's stunning to see that the Council is very well aware of the fact that slavery is a thriving enterprise on Tatooine, and they choose to do jack shit about it. Also, it's pretty clear that the Jedi Council doesn't give two fucks what happens to uh, Queen Amidala on Naboo. The fact that her planet was blockaded and then conquered by the Trade Federation doesn't even phase them. On top of all that, they don't even want to interview Anakin Skywalker. Now, understand, he was conceived by the Force itself. He's an official refugee from a slaveholding world, and he has no place else to go. Plus, he might be the chosen one spoken of in Jedi prophecy. The minute that they heard all of that, the Council should have rounded up a bunch of Jedi, zipped over to Tatooine, freed the slaves, and given the Senate the middle finger if they don't approve. But the Council doesn't. Tatooine is outside the Republic. That means it's outside the Council's legal jurisdiction. But here's the thing. The Jedi serve the Force. The Force has no jurisdiction. There's a moral good to be served here, even if there's not necessarily legal authority to carry it out. But the Council won't do anything to risk their favored position with the Senate so they turn a blind eye to the bondage and slavery on Tatooine. Staying on the Senate's good side is clearly more important than the rights of innocent people living in filth and misery. Plus, Mace Windu and Yoda only reluctantly agreed to interview Anakin for potential membership in the Jedi Order. But notice, they're just going through the motions. He's too old to begin the training. They only agreed to meet with him just to appease Qui-Gon. They did what they promised they'd do, and now Anakin can get the fuck out and languish in the streets for all they care. In fact, the only time Mace Windu and Yoda get shaken out of their complacency is when Qui-Gon announces that the Sith have returned to the galaxy. 
This shakes the Jedi Council to their foundation, because their entire dogma is built on the superiority of the Jedi way versus the Sith way. From that angle, it's pretty clear that the only reason the Council reassigns Qui-Gon and Obi-Wan to Queen Amidala's security detail is because they want to draw the Sith out of hiding. They're not concerned with Queen Amidala necessarily. Their only concern is the threat the Sith have always posed to the Jedi. If Darth Maul hadn't attacked Qui-Gon on Tatooine, I think it's pretty fucking clear that Yoda and Mace wouldn't care what happened to Queen Amidala once she arrived on Coruscant. But since Darth Maul was obviously out to capture the Queen and drag her ass back to Naboo to sign the Federation's treaty, she's obviously the key to getting the Sith. So, basically, Queen Amidala is just a pawn for the Council. Now, people, this is huge. We all wanted to believe that the Jedi Order were full of righteous, just warriors who would right wrongs and battle injustice wherever they found it, whether they were looking for it or not. So, all of this stuff was a huge challenge to our view of the Jedi in general, and Yoda in particular. Yoda was a great warrior, the guy we all assumed was the best that the Jedi had to offer. But episode one shows us that Yoda is a blowhard asshole. Now, I mention all of this to say that George Lucas took a shitload of chances and risks with the Phantom Menace. None bigger than showing us that the Jedi Order is led by a bunch of self-interested, self-serving cocks who care more about staying in the Senate's good graces than objective matters of right and wrong. People, that takes balls. The core Star Wars audience could have rebelled over that. And while they most certainly did rebel, it wasn't over that specifically. Anyway. Later on, Queen Amidala pleads her case to the Senate and then gets shouted down by representatives from the Trade Federation. Now, think about that for just a second. Just why in the holy fuck does the Trade Federation have representatives to the Republic Senate? That'd be like Microsoft, or Google, or some other giant fucking corporation sending senators to serve in the United States Congress. Now, people, I happen to agree with the Citizens United decision by the Supreme Court, but fuck's sake, even I don't think b huge businesses and banking interests and massive worldwide conglomerates should have that kind of say in the political process. That is how fucked up the Republic has gotten. A lot like the Jedi, the Republic may profess certain ideals and values and philosophies, but the simple fact of the matter is that the Senate is just as rotten as the Jedi Order. Specifically, the Senate's full of delegates who are constantly fighting each other over who gets to hog all the money and influence, rather than recognizing problems and proposing solutions to them. Shmi Skywalker says the Republic doesn't exist on Tatooine. People have to get by on their own, and it's easy to see why. Queen Amidala can't even get a fair fucking hearing. Her only choice is to play the game and initiate a vote of no confidence in Chancellor Valorum. So, basically, Queen Amidala is just a pawn for the Senate, too. Later, we find out that 
Senator Palpatine's been nominated to replace Valorum as Chancellor. We then realize that this was Palpatine's real agenda all along. And it looks like he'll get his way, too. So basically, Queen Amidala is just a pawn for Palpatine in addition to everybody else. Now, Queen Amidala looks absolutely disgusted with everything and everyone. The Jedi, the Senate, even her own senator from Naboo don't care about her or her people. All they care about is protecting the status quo or advancing their own careers. Life, justice, the rule of law, basic fucking right and wrong. None of these things count for jack shit on Coruscant. This stuff is all less revolutionary than portraying the Jedi Order as, a, as being full of conceited blowhards and dipshits, but it's still important inasmuch as Lucas is staying true to the material. He said, The Star Wars prequels hinge on the demise of democracy and the rise of totalitarianism. And here, we see that at least some degree of, of tyranny is, all, is unofficially already in place. It'll, it'll just be a little while before the Republic is transformed in actual fact. But the process has started here, and it goes to the heart of what the Phantom Menace is all about. Sure, the Jedi, the Queen, her security team, they all go back to Naboo and duke it out with the Trade Federation, and you know what? Fuck it. They even win the battle. But here's the rub. They've already lost the war. I mean, yeah, the Trade Federation's forces have been decimated. The Federation leaders have all been arrested. The Naboo and Gungan societies have been reconciled to one another, and there's now even concrete proof that the Sith have returned to the galaxy. But none of that shit matters because the bad guys have already won. Palpatine's the new Chancellor. Now, sure, he won't get the droid army that he wants, and he's lost his apprentice in the bargain. His agenda's been brought to a complete fucking stop for the time being. But the Jedi's victory is only temporary. The Senate's handed the keys to the kingdom over to the bad guys. From here on in, it's just a matter of time until he wins everything. There's a huge, festive parade going on at the end of the film, and it belies how dark the ending to this film truly is. At least, the tempo of the music does. Now, I mean, sure, you've got Gungans dancing around, and you've got children tossing flower petals while Naboo starfighters swoop by overhead. And you've also got the Jedi Council, who honestly contributed nothing but resistance to the battle, hanging around, presiding over everything. But the music proves how dark the final moments of The Phantom Menace truly are. The track is called Augie's Great Municipal Band. Slow the music down, and you'll see that it's actually just a, a sped-up version of the Emperor's thing. The music proves that the good guy's victory in Episode 1 is temporary and fleeting. Sure, they've won the battle, they've already lost the war, and they don't even realize it. These things are a great big reason for why I was such a huge Phantom Menace fan for so many years. I loved the themes that Lucas was exploring and the concepts that he was playing with. And all that stuff that I just mentioned, 
it's a big part of why I became a Star Wars junkie. There are some other cool aspects of The Phantom Menace as well. I mean, the volume of visual effects were a new thing at the time. Back in 1999, big effects-driven movies could be kind of compared to musicals in some ways. The narrative is usually put on hold so that the song can take center stage. And the same's true for big action films, or it was anyway. The story would get put on pause to show off all the cool explosions and aliens and stuff like that. That's not the way that episode one works. Lucas is probably the first filmmaker to use CGI and digital effects to tell his story. Just about every shot in the film has some type of visual effects trickery going on. A totally digital world outside of a window while characters are wandering around talking to each other or, or whatever. You've got Jar Jar wandering around in the background, CG flying creatures zipping all over the place and things like that. The effects are integrated into the story. The story doesn't stop when the effects are on the screen. The effects are always there. And often they're inseparable from the story that's going on or the scene uh, at hand. This was a totally new thing back in 1999. Nobody used effects this way back then. But it's a lot more commonplace now for directors to use visual effects in this way these days. By and large, I gotta tell you, the quality of those effects are actually beyond question. These days, and I don't, I don't know why this is, but these days, the metric of successful visual effects seems to be realism. But that's clearly not the style of effects that George Lucas prefers. He's from the eye candy school of visual effects. He likes big, loud, shiny, borderline obnoxious effects. I mean, right in your face. Worlds of wonder, filled to overflowing with all kinds of extreme environments and unusual creatures, amazing vehicles, and other bullshit. The style of effects in The Phantom Menace is beyond reproach in most cases. They're just amazing in the vast majority of cases, and I truly believe that ILM deserved some type of recognition from the Academy for all their work. Some type of consolation prize. Now, another amazing element to Episode 1 is that badass score by John Williams. It introduces brand new themes to the saga, and also calls back to several familiar bits of music from the original trilogy. Now, is Episode 1's score the best thing that Williams has ever done? Eye of the Beholder. But the Episode 1 score is definitely underrated amongst most fans. It's usually the perfect accompaniment to whatever we're seeing in Episode 1 at any given time. Anyway, now... Everything that we've talked about up to now is why I loved The Phantom Menace for so many years. I just can't fault Episode 1 in terms of literary themes or mythological motifs, visuals, aesthetics, costumes, makeup, music, effects, whatever. All of that stuff. But the simple fact of the matter is that Episode 1 has legitimate problems. Before we get into that, though, I think this is probably a good point to start discuss discussing, I guess, my evolution of 
my views about the prequels. As I said before, I fell in love with The Phantom Menace when it first came out. And at first, I pretty much bought into all of the bullshit that George Lucas was slinging about the special editions. I was a huge special edition fan. To me, it made sense to modify the original trilogy to make it better fit with the prequels. I truly thought that was the smart move. But that began to change in 2004. That's when the Star Wars trilogy was first released on DVD and all was not well. For one thing, it felt like Lucas was going back on his word, at least somewhat. He'd said that the special editions from 1997 were his definitive vision. That is what he intended in the first place. And like I said, I bought it. But the 2004 DVDs introduced more changes to the films. But, um, weren't the 1997 special editions supposedly definitive? I gotta tell you, though, what really bugged the fuck right out of me was just how shitty those DVDs from 2004 were. Lucas enhanced the black levels of the video to create this really high contrast style. The result was crushed blacks, and so you could barely make out any kind of shadow detail, the way that Lucas himself, as well as Irvin Kirshner and Richard Marquand intended you to. One side effect of this was that lightsabers usually looked dim and grimy, rather than bright and vibrant. Apart from that, though, the color levels were also enhanced way beyond what was originally intended, and so colors were saturated to almost ridiculous levels. So you've got this high-contrast, ultra-blacked-out video with way-over-the-top color levels, and the thing just looks like shit. And the only reason it was done that way was to set up sort of visual continuity with the prequels, which nobody ever intended. On top of all that, each movie's soundtrack got a brand new remix going for it. But there was no balance to the sound field in any of those films. It felt like the surround speakers were carrying way too much sound. Also, the first Star, Wa uh, Star Wars film was completely fucked up in as much as the rear speakers had the Williams score reversed from what it should be. Now, this 2004 DVD version of the Star Wars trilogy, those films were uh, remixed by Ben Burt. Now, Ben Burt is a master when it comes to sound design. But when it comes to sound mixing, Ben Burt has no idea what the fuck he's doing. And, you know what, look. I'll get more into this in some other show, but you have to understand that Ben Burt is rightly thought of as one of the many awesome parts of the original trilogy. But I'd go so far as to say that Ben Burt is the Star Wars saga's Achilles heel and has been ever since 1999. 2002 for sure. But again, I'll get into that some other time. And you know what, just so I don't develop a drinking problem, I'm just, I'm not even going to talk about those fucking Blu-rays. Anyway. So all in all, those 2004 DVDs were a major disappointment. And honestly, 
the beginning of the end of my appreciation for the special editions, but the real death knell for the special editions, at least for me, came in 2006, when Lucasfilm re-released the original Unaltered Trilogy on DVD. These original trilogy DVDs from 2006 were sourced from masters that Lucasfilm used for the 1993 re-release of the trilogy on home video. But oddly enough, that didn't bother me very much. For one thing, there's an authenticity to seeing the original trilogy and sort of vintage masters like that. So if anything, that actually enhanced the experience for me. I kind of enjoyed seeing the unaltered trilogy the way I'd always remembered it. But the other thing that releasing the original trilogy did was show me just how much Lucasfilm and Industrial Light and Magic had accomplished by using wire, duct tape, and chunks of styrofoam. Those original effect shots from the unaltered trilogy were amazing. And not just because they looked gorgeous, but also because they were made with such relatively primitive technology. Also, it's amazing how well all of the films flow, especially the first one, without stupid bullshit like Han meeting Jabba the Hutt in the first film, the unnecessarily prolonged uh, Falcon landing sequence from Empire Strikes Back, or that horrible, god-awful musical number from Return of the Jedi. The experience made me an uh, original, unaltered trilogy advocate. And that's been my position ever since 2006. So, I guess as far as the evolution of my Star Wars fandom is concerned, the special editions were the first thing to go. And so at that time, you could pretty much consider me a prequel fan who preferred the unaltered trilogy over the special edition. And you know what? That might very well have been the way that things stayed forevermore. Except... Lucas decided to re-release Episode 1 in theaters back in 2012. And that proved to be the straw that broke the camel's back when it comes to my Star Wars fandom. You see, it was only when I saw the 3D re-release of The Phantom Menace in theaters that I realized how much I actually secretly agreed with all of the prequel haters. Every time I watched The Phantom Menace, I'd always skip through Jar Jar scenes. Now, understand, originally, I'd been kind of a Jar Jar defender. He was a character intended to appeal to kids. That was his real function. But I think Lucas had bigger plans for Jar Jar. In the beginning, anyway. Now, everything that I'm about to tell you is total speculation on my part. I can't base this on too much of anything, but here's what I believe. I think that George Lucas thought that the masses everywhere would love and embrace Jar Jar Binks. He thought that Jar Jar would be the breakout character of The Phantom Menace, that he'd be the prequel's Chewie or something. I don't know. And I think Jar Jar was originally going to play much bigger roles in Episodes 2 and 3, especially Episode 3. I think that Lucas was planning for Anakin to kill Jar Jar as his final sort of initiation into the dark side. Jar Jar's entire existence, I think, 
was predicated on being the victim of Anakin Skywalker's first act of murder. But obviously that never happened. And I think the reason for that is because Jar Jar was so universally hated that Lucas realized he couldn't use Jar Jar the way he originally wanted to. Because people think about it. If episode 3 had included a scene where Anakin cut Jar Jar down with his lightsaber, white audi uh, audiences everywhere would have stood up and shouted in approval. They would have loved if Jar Jar could have died, and that's obviously not the reaction that Lucas wanted him to have. So instead, Lucas showed Anakin murdering children, which I guess accomplishes the same thing. Kind of. Either way, though, none of that's the point. The point is that when I was robbed of my fast-forward button, I was left facing the fact that the critics and haters had been right all along. Jar Jar's damned annoying. It doesn't help that Lucas intended him to be annoying. He's damned aggravating, and it doesn't help at all that Lucas meant to do that. Deprived of my fast-forward button, I realize that there are other problems with The Phantom Menace, too. Their narrative pretty much keels over and dies once the Jedi arrive on Tatooine. It doesn't really recover again until Darth Maul attacks Qui-Gon and Anakin in the desert. Then from there, the movie sort of just plods along until the Battle of Naboo starts, and from there, it's wall-to-wall -wall action. But the last time the movie had a real pulse to it, was when Qui-Gon and Obi-Wan escaped from the uh, Trade Federation battleship, which had been over an hour and a half earlier in the film. Now, sure, the lightsaber battles are awesome. Who, and who doesn't love a good, uh, a good pod race? And I gotta tell you, the starship battle at the end of the film, that's pretty impressive too. But between Jar Jar and some really weird non-sequitur dialogue, fucked up pacing and a bunch of other problems, for the first time, I could absolutely see where the naysayers were coming from. The movie loses all momentum after a certain point. The acting is pretty fucking questionable. The dialogue frequently makes no fucking sense whatsoever. Something something Jar Jar, and most of all... Well, most of all, George Lucas began changing the Phantom Menace just, as, just like he did with the original trilogy, starting with Episode One's first DVD uh, release back in 2001. He inserted extra bits of business here and there, primarily the pod race, but also in a couple of other places too. I thought that shit was all unnecessary and frequently very poorly done. But in the 3D re-release, Lucas made good on a lot of fan speculation by totally replacing the puppet Yoda with the CGI Yoda from Revenge of the Sith. Now, yeah, the original Yoda puppet from Episode 1 was shitty. Nothing will ever change that. But damn it, the movie I originally loved had a weird, creepy-looking Yoda puppet in it, and damn it, I didn't want that to change. Incidentally, that attitude was yet another in a growing list of things that I had in common with those pissed-off original trilogy fans that I used to mock. Most importantly of all, though, is the fact that when you come right down to it, there isn't much of real, 
consequence that happens in The Phantom Menace. Yeah, a lot of things are set up for the future, but in terms of the big picture of the Star Wars backstory that we all know, there are only two things of vital importance that happens in Episode uh, 1. First, Anakin leaves his mother. This is the defining moment of that kid's life. It's the point where he had to leave everything he'd ever known behind in order to move on to a very uncertain future. Second, Palpatine becomes Chancellor of the Republic. This is the first major step that he's taken toward absolute power and a very dark future for the galaxy. But apart from those things, Nothing that goes down in The Phantom Menace is really all that vital to the saga. Lucas freely admits that he artificially built a story around those two events just to fill up Episode One's runtime. So, once in a while, there's someone on Facebook who posts something about the Star Wars saga's so-called machete order. This is where you watch the five other Star Wars movies besides The Phantom Menace. And the whole point of the Machete Order is that you don't really need The Phantom Menace when all's said and done. That's a criticism that I very much agree with. Yes, Lucas set up a lot of things for future films, but those things don't really require The Phantom Menace as essential viewing. There's more than enough exposition in those films to address the key events of Episode One. You don't absolutely need to see episode one. Now, that does not take away from the movie's strengths and advantages, you understand. It's just the recognition that it's by far the most inconsequential Star Wars film. Anyway. So, up to now, I've talked about episode one's many and varied strengths, the film's numerous weaknesses, and my own changing view of the prequels, but what I haven't talked a whole lot about is the stuff that people threw fits over that I think were pointless and unwarranted. First, the pod race has been picked on by a lot of people, but the fact is that George Lucas is a well-known racing enthusiast, so there's that. But my argument is that Episode One takes place in a mostly kinder, gentler time in the galaxy's history. So, it seems logical, at least to me, that sporting events should help satisfy the movie's action quotient, rather than spacefaring battles and shit like that. Plus, the sequence really is a technical marvel. Again, films had never been done this way before. Lucas broke a shit ton of new ground just with the Padre sequence alone. I can understand if it's not to everyone's taste, but you really can't fault the pod race on a technical level. Another thing people griped about was the tone of the film. The Phantom Menace is just too kiddie-oriented. Now, on the one hand, I'll agree that Jar Jar stepping in dog shit or having that whatever the fuck it is fart in his face is completely unnecessary. But when people criticize how kid-oriented the tone of Episode 1 is, I think they're referring to just how bright and optimistic and upbeat the film is. Now, I said a while ago that the tone of the film is deceptive. I think the final moments of the movie are incredibly dark, 
precisely because they don't foreshadow what's to come. The good guys all believe that they've vanquished evil forever, and they have no idea how truly fucked they all are. So there's a, tw a, a kind of subtle twisting of the knife then. The other thing, though, is that the bright sort of cheerfulness of the Phantom Menace allows for more contrast in the later films when shit really does hit the fan. But there's another factor going on here that I don't think most people ever stop to think about. Right around the time of Return of the Jedi coming out in theaters, George Lucas went through a divorce, and it pretty much wiped him out. There was this lingering perception for years of Lucas as a billionaire, but that just wasn't true for most of the 80s and probably all of the 90s. Lucas was comfortable, no question about it, but he'd lost his fortune. So, when he self-financed episode one, he scraped together pretty much every dime he had to his name in order to get the movie made. And if the movie had tanked it at the box office, Lucas would have been living in a box somewhere in a scummy alley in Hollywood. Lucas was risking pretty much everything with The Phantom Menace, and because of that, he played it as safe as he possibly could with the movie's tone. He went for a com as commercial a vibe as he possibly could, specifically to appeal to mass audiences everywhere. On top of all that, there apparently wasn't a single merchandising deal for Episode One that Lucas uh, wasn't ready to accept. Now, people whined and complained at the time about how commercial the film was, how massive the hype was, and how, uh, how much merchandising there was, but I think Lucas was scared shitless that he was going to lose everything and was trying to cover his bets as much as he could. Now, in the end, Episode 1 did crazy good business. So maybe his worrying was all for nothing, but it was theoretically possible that Episode 1 might completely tank it in theaters, and Lucas was trying to get as much capital uh, together as he could in order to protect himself if the worst happened. My attitude there is that he was only making the exact same business decisions that I would have made in his place, so it seems kind of hard for me to criticize the guy too much. Anyway, my point in all of this has been to say that I started out as a major Phantom Menace fan. But over the years, I've slowly started to understand and accept all the problems and grievances that people had with this film. And I even agree with most of them now. But here's the thing. It's not a black and white issue for me. The Phantom Menace isn't the greatest film ever made, but it's not even close to the worst film ever made either. What I'm driving at is, I don't think you can say that Episode 1 sucks, or Episode 1 is awesome. It's not a case of being black and white, good or bad. The film has a lot of strengths to it, but it's got a lot of weaknesses too. Episode 1 has a ton of good ideas, but there are problems and weaknesses, and most of those weaknesses could have been fixed had Lucas done what people always said that he should do, and hire a co-writer to give the rough draft and the first draft of episode one script a polish. The other thing though is that The Phantom Menace was written pretty much the same way the original trilogy was. Which is to say, 
Lucas made it all up as he went along. Now, again, I understand that Lucas has spent the past 30 years telling everybody who's willing to listen that he's had all these scripts and shit written since May of 1974, and my issue there is that I just don't believe the facts bear that out. I think the preponderance of evidence easily demonstrates that Lucas invented the original trilogy as he went along. And you can't argue with the results either. But Lucas evidently didn't understand that the same approach wasn't going to work with the prequels. He obviously didn't outline each film before shooting began on The Phantom Menace. He didn't necessarily know the details of where he was going when episode one premiered in theaters. And as I'll demonstrate in future episodes, I think that really hurts the prequels as a trilogy. But it needs to be established, here and now, that I believe George's lack of planning and foresight came as a serious detriment to the saga as a whole. For all of the good elements of Episode 1, and there are many, nothing can overcome the problems that the subsequent films had to deal with specifically because Lucas didn't take the time to plan it all out ahead of time. Anyway. So, there you go. 99 episodes of Trennis Magnus Punches Reality. Be sure to join me next week for my epic, epic, epic 100th episode anniversary retrospective spectacular extravaganza. Bye, everybody. See you next week. Play it. Come on. Play it loud. Play it loud. And now, it's time to sit back and enjoy the Two True Freaks Internet Radio Broadcast. Illogic. Foolish emotions. A constant irritant. Intense freak! Two! Belong in the circus. Right next to the dog-faced boy. True! I have come here to chew bubblegum and kick ass. And I'm all out of bubblegum. Oh, It's a super prize package worth $9,300. This isn't the biggest bag over the head punch in the face I ever got. God damn it! Ow! Go and now, <laughs> together by live simulation via the internet, your hosts, Scott Gardner. He killed a police officer for Christ's sake. Yeah, goddamn lucky he didn't kill all. And Chris Honeywell. Keep away! Keep away from me! You are physically repulsive, intellectually retarded, vulgar, insensitive, selfish, stupid. You have no taste, a lousy sense of humor, and you smell. So you're looking at me? Yeah, because she thought you're some kind of freak. Now come on, hey, let's God, go. She likes me, eh? No way. Shut up, you freak! Julia, you. I say shut up! 
TrueFreaks.com Gather together from the disparate reaches of geekdom, here in this restaurant booth are the most powerful forces of geek ever assembled. The Toy Geek Scott, the award-winning radio host Jeff, Scott's minion And Ron, just Ron Dedicated to truth, justice, and geek for all mankind It's Dinner for Geeks Dinner for Geeks proudly crusades at twotruefreaks.com. This is an imaginary podcast, which may never have happened. The Shortbox Showcase. But then again may have. About a father and daughter. I'm Professor Allen. And I'm Emily. Who came from Ohio and talked about comics. Walking Dead. Tintin. Black Lightning white tiger it tells of their rise to glory when the great guests were yet to be booked let's put it this way shogun warriors wasn't going to win any eisners and the great feats of editing not yet performed this is ultra seven this ultraman jack and this ultraman taro and this ultraman leo and this of how they spoke at length this continuity is really the brainchild of nitpicking nerds the world over but to be fair the best kind of confession is the force confession and reviewed in brief tales that explore creatively the bounds of a given character's history. Red Sun is wonderful with a very strange ending. Of brilliant creators before their fall from grace. This is the era where Miller is at the height of his creative and artistic powers, and the ability of strong writing to encapsulate and transcend its time. Flash of Two Earths by Gardner Fox. This is an imaginary podcast. Aren't they all? Shortbox Showcase is part of the Relatively Geeky family of podcasts. Check us out on the web at relativelygeekypodcast.blogspot.com or search in iTunes for Relatively Geeky or Shortbox Showcase. And remember, we're not experts. We're just family. Okay, I'm back now, and I'm continuing my look back at Star Wars Episode One: The Phantom Menace. And what I did, this is kind of uncharacteristic of me, but uh, what I did was I put an announcement up on the Facebook page inviting uh, really everyone to send in their thoughts concerning The Phantom Menace. You know, whatever it is, just positive, negative or after all these years, maybe you're just ambivalent. Whatever it was, go ahead and send that to me. And I was hoping that at least a few of my podcasting vassals would hear the call, and indeed a few of them did, and they responded accordingly. And so 
There's actually quite a bit here to talk about. Dare I say more than I was originally expecting. And the reason that I say that this is a little bit uncharacteristic of me is... The way I've always done this show is... Let's face it. I am Magnus. So what I believe is the definition of what is. I am the leader. Those listening are my loyal subjects. And that's always served me very well, I think. But at least in this particular case, I thought that maybe it could be a little bit interesting if we could get some feedback. Or perhaps feed forward, actually, is what this is, because... I'm soliciting in the, uh, all of this in the self-same episode that I'm making my own comments. So there's a very good chance here that uh, there's going to be differences of opinion and everything since nobody knows what anyone else is going to be saying. Certainly no one knew prior to sending their message what I would be saying. And so there's a very good chance here that there's going to be some differences of opinion, some uh, conflict and everything. So... I guess in the first place, uh, this is an audio submission that came through from my podcasting vassal, Tom Panneries. Quite a lot to say, and it's actually very surprising that he manages to convey a- as many ideas as he does in five minutes. I mean, the guy's leaking ideas all over the place, and keep in mind, his submission here, it's only five minutes. So keep all of that in mind as you listen to all this. And um, so for right now, here is Tom Panaris. Greetings, Your Excellency. This is Tom Panaris, host of Pop Culture Affidavit and In Country. They're both featured on the Two True Freaks Network as well as your illustrious show. A very quick thought on The Phantom Menace. I'm trying to give you a perspective that is unique as opposed to the usual pissing and moaning about Jar Jar Binks and, you know, whether or not our expectations were too high going into this in the summer of 1999, um, things I've said elsewhere, and things I'm sure that I'm the only person to say. Okay, two things. One, I do think this movie suffers from the fact that Jake Lloyd was cast as Anakin, not because of his performance per se, but because I think that Lucas made a mistake in making Anakin so young at the beginning of the new trilogy. Had he been 12 or 13, how they actually cast an actor who was going to be Anakin through all three movies, Hayden Christensen or not, we'll, we'll, we'll table that, and tightened the time frame for the three movies so that Phantom Menace doesn't stick out like a sore thumb, I think it might have worked a little bit better. Perhaps to use an analogy that would apply to one of my podcasts, perhaps making the Naboo invasion at the end of The Phantom Menace the Gulf of Tonkin incident that allows for Palpatine to begin all this military buildup and things that you have in the Clone War instead of that kind of being the Geonosis thing and, and, and kind of pushing it a little bit earlier. Because I get, I get the political gamesmanship that's going on in The Phantom Menace with him grabbing the power away from Chancellor Valorum, but... It seems that the Naboo invasion is there kind of, you know, I don't know. It, it could have been a little little bit more integral or something, like I said, this just all needs to be tighter. And another thing that kind of dawned on me is that Lucas got a lot of flack for some obvious things. Star Trek Banks, the very, very wooden dialogue, especially in, especially when you get to 
Attack of the Clones, and you have Natalie Portman and and Hayden Christensen and the love story part of it. He got a lot of flack for these all these depictions of you know, these Senate meetings about trade routes and, and things, which if you've ever watched C-SPAN, it's pretty, you know, it's almost like he was watching C-SPAN. But the thing is, and I don't know what the overlap between Game of Thrones fans and Star Wars fans is, but if you've ever read George R.R. R. Martin's novels, there's a lot of that stuff. I mean, uh, uh, there there's a lot of of A Clash of Kings or, or Storm of Swords. Um, a Clash of Kings more than that. I, I have not read the, the fourth and fifth book in that series yet. Where nothing seems to happen. It's just a lot of, you know, it's a lot of gamesmanship. It's a lot of, you know, moving the pieces around. And Lucas seemed to be doing that in this. And it's almost as if this is the sort of saga of Westeros of the... Like, Westeros is the old republic of the Star Wars universe. Unfortunately, it's not as well executed as it could have been. And I think that's where my ultimate disappointment with The Phantom Menace comes from. This could have been a political thriller. This could have been a classic King Lear-esque Shakespearean royal tragedy. This could have been, like, there. there's so much potential here in documenting the fall of the old republic and the rise of the empire. And having there truly be a phantom menace, because that's a really good title for the movie, believe it or not. I, it, I just think that it was, it was missed. And uh, no fan edit can make it live up to that potential, because you would have had to rewrite a lot of it. And... Maybe this was not the best approach for the three movies. Maybe you needed a television show for this. I mean, the reason, you know, Game of Thrones has five seasons and you can just go on and on and on. But it's just food for thought that people have and are pulling off what Lucas was obviously after in this film. I'm looking forward to The Force Awakens. I'm looking forward to seeing another take on the Star Wars universe. I am not among those fans who is glad that Lucas isn't a part of it, because honestly, I think that's insulting to the man who gave us this in the first place. But, you know, that's just me being, you know, not a little bitch. So, anyway, uh, I hope you can use this. Uh, thank you for soliciting uh, my comments, my feedback, and best of luck tackling this. Can't wait to hear your entire episode about The Phantom Menace. Well, first off, I just want to start this by saying thank you very much, Tom, for sending in your thoughts about The Phantom Menace. I mean, this is a subject that, if you think about it, really does fit in rather nicely with sort of the tone and the format of pop culture affidavit. And so the fact that you you gave so much of your time in editing all of this together, recording it, sending it to me and all of that, and also, let's face it, potential material for your own show, I really do appreciate you. Uh, taking the time to uh, write in. This was a very special treat, so I really appreciate that. 
You actually raised a lot of good points, many of which I agree with, some of which I don't. Uh, for example, um, one of the uh, articles of uh, interest among fans uh, for quite a while now, I, I would say probably since The Phantom Menace went into production, was the concept of a nine-year-old Anakin Skywalker. And as with a lot of people, I thought that was just very wrong-headed. I thought that Anakin needed to be older in order to make some of his actions, uh, I don't know, believable or more believable. And there was a point even where I can I, I could somewhat see where Lucas was coming from in that, number one, there is such a thing as a child prodigy who is capable of, you know, racing uh, motorcycles and doing all these, you know, crazy things that we generally associate with people who are a lot older and just more mentally developed and somehow these children are able to do it anyway and so that is actually not a very difficult thing for me to believe i could really buy into the concept that between anakin's natural talent for say pod racing he's just got a, a natural gift there combined with his force sensitivity it's not a stretch for me to believe that he could pilot a pod racer what i cannot believe is that he could accidentally fly an abu starfighter into orbit accidentally take out a bunch of enemy uh, ships accidentally crash land into one of the uh, uh, trade federation sort of sphere ships accidentally uh, blow up their nuclear core, accidentally escape just in the nick of time. I mean, it really does defy credibility. And I realize that we're talking about all of this in the context of uh, telekinetic wizards with special swords made of light. I get that. I'm just saying that even within the sort of loose framework of what is already sort of a fantasy story, this is really just too much to believe. It does pay off, the concept of a nine-year-old Anakin, it actually does pay off for me, from the from like an, a, uh, an emotional standpoint, somebody that young, really being forced to leave his mother, the only parent he's ever known. All of this to go off into outer space with a bunch of complete strangers to face an uncertain future, and then, of course, he ends up getting, I don't know, interviewed, picked apart, and then rejected by the Jedi Council. That aspect of it, I feel like I can see where Lucas was coming from. That Anakin may be fundamentally a good kid, at least to start with, but he's got his limits. And he's going to remember all the times that the Jedi ignored him or underestimated him or, or any of these other things but The Phantom Menace works uh, on many levels only one of which is issues and themes relating to the larger saga as far as just the story itself the narrative that The Phantom Menace advances and then ultimately has to resolve as I say it requires me to believe all of these impossible just patently fucking impossible things that Anakin is somehow capable of doing with or without the Force, with or without being a child prodigy when it comes to uh, racing and all of these other things. I just don't fucking buy it. And ultimately, I think that works to undermine the credibility of The Phantom Menace as a film. It doesn't necessarily affect the prequels at large, or at least not necessarily, 
But, uh, Tom, I really do have to agree with you that I think this story would have been well served by, if not casting an, uh, an older actor for an older Anakin. And, by the way, again, I do agree with you on that, but at the very least, putting Anakin in more credible types of situations where he sneaks on board a, a Naboo starfighter and he consciously, he wittingly stows away into the battle and then he has to take over uh, piloting you know, certain things or maybe he, I don't know, uh, fuck it, something. Okay, but this whole idea of Anakin being single-handedly capable of destroying the Trade Federation starship that's controlling the droid army on Naboo. I realize that that ties in with Luke Skywalker destroying the Death Star in Star Wars. I just don't think that the sort of rhyming, or as George Lucas calls it, or the thematic resonance of both Skywalker uh, kids facing very similar situations, at least in that particular respect, I don't think that outweighs just the incredibility of Anakin being able to do so much as a small child. I just don't fucking buy it. I mean, I don't consider myself to be the smartest person in the world, but I'm certainly not the dumbest. But as a kid, I was a complete fucking idiot. When I was nine years old, I didn't know up from down. I barely knew left from right. It was really the most I could do to manage walking home from school from the bus stop, right? That was about as much as I could manage. So maybe I just, you know, call it the soft bigotry of low expectations. I don't know. I'm just saying that, uh, Tom, I really do agree with you in that the, just fundamentally, it should have been an older actor, period, end of discussion. So one of the things you mentioned, though, and this actually I do find kind of interesting, is having the uh, prequels take place over a shorter period of time. To my understanding, the timeline works out something as follows. The Phantom Menace takes place 32 years before Star Wars. Then you've got Attack of the Clones, which play, takes place 22 years before Star Wars. And then, of course, Revenge of the Sith, 19 years before Star Wars. So that basically gives uh, the prequels a 13-year sort of timeline to work in. And if you think about it, that's a pretty fucking long timeline. Now, in and of itself, I don't think that's necessarily fatal to anything. One of the things that I think actually does work with The Phantom Menace is in placing it so far before the events of Star Wars, it shows us just what was lost when the Empire moved in and took over. And so that part I'm actually okay with. But there's there's this sort of disorganized nature of the story where, as you say, you know, had the Battle of Naboo been kind of like the Gulf of Tonkin that allowed uh, Palpatine to begin uh, the military buildup in the Republic a whole lot sooner, had that been his pretext for doing so? Honestly, it's one of those things that's just so fucking obvious. I mean, I would almost be tempted to say that I'm amazed Lucas didn't think of it, except... Lucas couldn't have thought of it because my thesis is Lucas wrote each Star Wars prequel as a standalone thing. He can say whatever bullshit he wants that he had the whole shit planned out ahead of time. I could buy into that he had maybe five or six paragraphs of a general backstory. 
but the fine details of the plot, I'm just not at all convinced that he had those things worked out ahead of time. And to me, Defense Exhibit A, is go, or Prosecution's Exhibit A, is always going to be just how disconnected the Phantom Menace is from the goings-on in the, other, in the other two prequels. And as you say, I mean, there was a golden opportunity to use the Battle of Naboo and the Phantom Menace as sort of the opening salvo of the Clone War. Because when you think about it, the events of the Clone War, they're, they're, they're basically more or less what we saw in the Battle of Naboo from the Phantom Menace just played out all, o- all across the galaxy with a host of different characters. But it's basically an expansion on this, uh, on this single plot that we've already seen, the single battle. It's just more of that, but different and on a bigger canvas. And that's really it. So, you know, the similarities there, it, it just, I really do regard this. As you say, this is a little bit of a missed opportunity. You know, not using this as the uh, sort of Gulf of Tonkin equivalent to... Uh, uh, bring the galaxy to to the brink of war, and all of that. And yeah, I just I tend to agree with you. Now, in passing, you mentioned the love story between Anakin and Padme in Attack of the Clones. It's outside the scope of what this episode is uh, supposed to be. To really talk too much about that, but I am working together a. Uh, uh, an Attack of the Clones retrospective, and fucked if I know when it's ever going to come out. I mean, I've got a few openings in my schedule here and there, so maybe I'll just uh, use one of those openings to uh, talk about Attack of the Clones. I think I would like to get your story, or not your story, your uh, your perspective on the love story as it's shown in Attack of the Clones, simply because I think you and I are going to have very similar views you and I have very similar views really about a lot of things to begin with anyway, but in particular, I think you may find my viewpoint concerning the uh, love story. Number one, something that you probably haven't heard before. Number two, I think you may find it interesting. That's not to say necessarily that you'll find it persuasive, but I think you may find it a little bit interesting. So we'll we'll, uh, just table that for right now. As you say, I think that's probably a good move. Another thing that you mentioned was that what was sort of the whole C-SPAN angle, you know, with all the taxation and the trade routes and all that fun stuff, and how this was sort of a big source of your dis- uh, your disappointment in that the Phantom Menace in particular, but perhaps the prequels in general, might have been well served as a sort of political thriller along the lines of King Lear as a sort of political tragedy. And... This is one of those things where I kind of have to call George Lucas out on the carpet and say that he... I don't want to... Actually, now that I think about it, I'm not sure if I want to go so far as to say that he broke a promise. But one of the impressions he gave concerning the prequels was that it was going to be, and I quote, more Machiavellian than the original trilogy, which was big and swashbuckling and epic and galaxy-spanning and all that fun stuff. The prequels were supposed to be a little bit more centered on intrigue. There was going to be a little bit more of a political undercurrent to it all. And it felt like The Phantom Menace, just as a title, it kind of speaks of this sort of vague, unknown threat that everyone's aware of, but nobody can really affix a name to. And 
just the 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 sensitivity of it the 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 fear the paranoia that it feels like the galaxy is hurtling towards this inexorable fate this this the doom of war and all of these other things and this is something that fundamentally fucking nobody wants nobody wants war but somehow we find ourselves just sliding towards war even though all sides involved agree with the fact that they don't want to go to war and this whole idea of you know using the sith as they are in the prequel sort of controlling everything from behind the scenes but I don't know, basically something that that's a little bit more focused on mood and atmosphere as opposed to trying to constantly punch up the story with these huge action sequences. I mean, as impressive as the action sequences are in the prequels, it feels like it's that much less time now that we have to focus on sort of the blood and guts of the story. And when you think about it, the prequels, of all things, have they are all about narrative. They're all about plot. I think... The original trilogy it is rightly regarded as a sort of character piece. I think there's a lot of juice to that. The prequels necessarily were going to be plot-driven. And the fact that the plot with the prequels, it pretty much is what it is. I, again, I just feel like this is a, a sort of a missed opportunity. And by the by, kudos to you for pointing out the fact that no fan edit can save this film. I tend to very much agree with that. I, I haven't really... I don't want to give the give the impression that I've sat down and watched a whole lot of fan edits. Number one, that's an art form that I just kind of hold at arm's length. I, it's hard for me to respect somebody who, on, who, who will, on the one hand, champion the director's original vision, but then on the other hand, they think nothing of hacking things like Superman 2 to pieces or uh, The Phantom Menace or The Matrix Reloaded or just fucking whatever, Terminator 3, you know, any of those movies to pieces to satisfy what they think the movies ought to have been. Well, dude, if you feel that strongly about it, why don't you go out there and make your own movie? Why do you got to chew up somebody else's, you know, just screw around and fuck it up? You know, I just, I don't understand. So I tend to agree with you. A a fan edit would have... It, there's just no way that that was ever gonna, ever gonna save the film. I mean, you can eliminate, you know, certain plot points perhaps that you're not overly fond of, but eh, I mean, end of the day, it's just why, you know, what's what is the point of this? So, anyway, now, Star Wars as a TV show. This is one of those things I've always been a little bit uh, leery of, but what I will say is that. When you, when, when you speak about tightening up the story and whatnot, to me what this ultimately refers to is not just the fact that Lucas didn't really outline the prequel trilogy ahead of time, and I'm convinced he didn't. I don't think that the, that the backstory, in a general sense, the backstory of the Star Wars trilogy, which is to say Star Wars, Empire, and Jedi, I don't think that's a very trilogy-friendly type of story you could do it as a tv show you could do it as one gigantic film you could do it as a very interesting two-parter which is by the way an interest another interesting aspect of the machete order of the star wars saga and all these things but the idea of spreading that storyline out over precisely three movies the way that george lucas did it i'm just not convinced 
that was a successful way to go. And so, of course, that begs the question of what exactly the better way might have been. And as far as doing it on TV, you know, as far as serving the pacing and the tone of what, uh, of what this story could have been, you raise a very good point, sir. I mean, that's that, a kudos. That's a hell of a, an observation because it would have, doing this as a, even as a TV miniseries, you know, as maybe six one-hour, uh, I don't know, episodes, shows, mo- mini-films, whatever you want to call it, ep- episodes, I guess, of a TV miniseries, and then that's episode one. Maybe another, uh, as part two, you know, episode two, Attack of the Clones, that's another six, six-hour uh, miniseries, you know, so on. That's got a lot of disco potential to it. Or three hours, four hours, fucking whatever format. I mean, I'm not married to the length of the thing. It's more about what would serve the story best. And there were a lot of things that needed to get covered in, I guess, the basics of what most of us probably expected from the prequels that were either sort of glossed over in a very unconvincing uh, way or else were completely subsumed because of, let's face it, the demand of the narrative to constantly move forward, which it has to do in, the, in these types of, in these types of uh, big special effects-oriented uh, films. And so that, I don't know, there's, there's a lot to be said there. Now, you also mentioned The Force Awakens. And again, to even really get into that is sort of off-topic with you know, my subject matter of the show. But what I do want to say is, number one, I kind of agree with you. I'm looking forward to The Force Awakens as well. And I guess I hadn't realized how interested in that I was seeing until the full-length trailer came out a couple of weeks ago. And uh, we actually got our first glimpse of, among other things, Han and Chewie. It looked like they were on board the Millennium Falcon. And I have seen that trailer so fucking many times now. I think it was Scott Rifen on Dinner uh, for Geeks. He was talking about how he just he just kept watching it again and again and again. And there was something about it that just captured his imagination. And I don't think I've seen the trailer as many times as he has. But damned if it doesn't look interesting. I'm with you, though, whenever you mention the fact that it's kind of an insult to Lucas to cheer his departure. Number one, I think it overlooks the fact that George Lucas, he had, I would say, probably minimal, if any, creative input into uh, the Star Wars Holiday Special. And nobody regards that as the high watermark of Star Wars. I mean, that's a joke to everybody to this day. I mean, there are people who love it for sort of ironic value or kitsch value camp value whatever else but end of the day it's just a piece of shit i mean there's no way anybody can sit down and truly enjoy watching this thing for its sheer entertainment purposes i mean it's just it's a one of those little fucked up nuggets of star wars lore that only i would say well less so now but there was a point when it felt like only core fans really even knew the holiday special existed and so certainly there was that going on and Lucas had little to no real involvement with that. On the other hand, Star Wars, which is to say the first film, it was pretty much his brainchild. 
you know, he had, you know, editors and whatnot that, you know, cut the movie together for him. And, you know, there were notes and things uh, made by filmmakers and his colleagues and whatnot that he took to heart and used in the film. But by and large, Star Wars, as a film, was his thing, his creation. And that turned out amazing. So this whole sort of uh, conventional wisdom of less of George Lucas involved with Star Wars is automatically a good thing. I just don't buy that. I think the jury is very much out when it comes to that. So all of this is a very friggin' long way of saying that, uh, yeah, I, I tend to agree with you. And uh, once again, thank you very much for sending in uh, this uh, MP3 to me so I could play it on the show. Really appreciate you taking the time to do that. Um, and as always, I'm in awe of what you do with your shows. So uh, thank you very much for uh, sending this in, for your time, for your friendship, for your shows, for all of it. So just thank you very much. I, I've, I can't wait to hear what, what you've got coming for us in the future. And ladies and gentlemen, that was Tom Panarese. So uh, I, I received other... Uh, other uh, bits of feed forward, though, from uh, Facebook uh, members on the group. Uh, this one comes from Ivan White. He starts his email off by saying, Midi-chlorians. What are your feelings on them on the whole, and why do you think the choice was made to include them? Was there no other way to quantify how soaked in the Force Skywalker was? open parentheses, this is my assumption, close parentheses, for the Lucasfilm Writer's Room. Signed, Shay. Well, Ivan, I think, you know, we're, I think another email actually touches upon this uh, later, but really there are two issues as I see it. In Return of the Jedi, Luke said to Leia that the Force runs strong in his family. So, I grew up really with the assumption that the Force was a hereditary thing. It wasn't necessarily exclusively a spiritual discipline, although it could be, maybe. But this is almost like a superpower in as much as if your parents have it, there's a decent chance you will as well. And so news of the midichlorians, I didn't really... I, and even now, I really don't see what the hubbub with all that's about, you know, the controversy. Number one, I feel like that was fairly well established in shorthand, but it was established in Return of the Jedi. And number two, as you say, Lucas needed objective criteria by which he could say that Anakin Skywalker is something special. Even by Jedi standards, which pretty much Yoda is... He seems to be the uh, benchmark by which all other Jedi are, are judged. Even Yoda pales in comparison to, to the uh, potential that Anakin has. And so, really, I think it's basically... Uh, it, midichlorians, the entire concept, I think, existed really only so that uh, Lucas could have that one scene where he shows the fact that Anakin is objectively so much further ahead than anybody else. And it also, honestly, it, it really does help 
somewhat explain how Anakin, like I said before, is able to uh, pilot a pod racer. I mean, between his natural gift for racing and speed and all those sorts of things, as well as his his possible conception by the Force itself, indicates that it's very realistic that Anakin could drive a pod racer at what like how fast is that thing going like 400 miles an hour 500 miles an hour something like that yeah it's absolutely believable that uh, even a kid that young could do it with his natural talent and with that much force mojo on his side so i can i I guess i can kind of understand you know why it would uh bother some people in that if they had this view of the force as sort of a vague not even a religion, but sort of a vague spirituality, that this is something that anybody can master if they are simply masters of themselves. And, you know, there's a whole lot of, I don't know, literary romance wrapped up with that. It's just, my star, my interest in Star Wars was never really predicated on that, so it's, it feels like on the one hand it's sort of hypocritical of me to really say too much about that, but it's just one of those things that never really bothered me, especially when I realized its utility in the story. So if it was bothersome to you, then Ivan, I've really got no logical argument against it. All I can say is it really wasn't all that bothersome for me. So that's about the best way that I really know how to say it. So, But uh, all the same, thank you very much for uh, taking the time to, to uh, write in and just uh, let me know what you think. So... Moving on from that, the next email comes in from fan Boyamus Prime. He writes, oh, the subject line is, uh, you asked for my thoughts on episode one, and so I'll tell you. He writes, I believe the one word is disappointment. I came into the theater humming the Star Wars theme song, and it just didn't live up. Could anything live up to that? Not sure. But that sure didn't feel like it It was really trying. I also personally think Jar Jar is frozen in a block of carbonite. Hope that's short enough for the show. And indeed it is. Thank you very much for taking the time to uh, write in, Prime. Um, could anything have, have, have really lived up to what people were expecting? Well, yes. My suspicion is that People walked into movie theaters on May of whatever it was, 1999, May 19th, I think, 1999, wanting to see a certain something. And at least in a few cases, it's readily apparent that they didn't get it. Now, why why is it that I think that there is a movie they could have seen that would have scratched the fanboy itch for them? Well... There are documented stories of people paying money to see just bullshit, like Meet Joe Black or something like that, just so they could see the episode one teaser or the trailer or whatever it was. And they, in many cases, pretty much creamed their shorts. And so based on that, a movie that that includes everything seen in the trailer but with fundamentally a better story or more interesting characters or or maybe just a, a less kid-oriented, less commercial type of vibe to it. There is something Lucas could have produced that people would have responded better to. And when I say people, 
I refer to fans because I think it's kind of hard to argue that the Phantom Menace wasn't somehow a success. I mean, it's grossed something like 400 or some odd million dollars just in the United States alone. There's really no way you can say that it just pissed off vast swaths of people. I don't know. But, you know, the question is, you know, is there a movie that could have been shown on that day that the core fans might have responded better to? I have to assume yes, based on the fact that people were so in love with the teaser and the trailer and all of those other things, the TV spots. There is something they could have seen that they would have responded better to. Now, that may be something so different. It may differ wildly from one person to the next, but the answer is just fundamentally yes. There is something that that could have been done. I mean, ultimately, the hype for this movie, it was what it was. You know, all of the merchandising, all of the tie-ins, all of the excitement of the film. Lucas created those things on his own. He had a marketing machine that was working behind him that w- that I shudder to think the hours they worked overtime to get everybody whipped into a fucking frenzy for this movie. And people were expecting the second coming based on expectations fostered by Lucasfilm itself. So it feels hypocritical to turn right around and say that audiences are to blame for that. I just find that Number one, it's sort of dismissive of, of the fans. And number two, it's sort of a denial of reality that, you know, it wasn't the fans who whipped themselves into this frenzy. I mean, if you think about, just think about the, um, the first release of toys uh, and various action figures and whatnot related to the Phantom Menace. There was an action figure for Rick Oley. Rick Oley. He's a he's just a, a nobody, and in the movie, no-name pilot who flew around uh, Queen Amidala's uh, a royal starship, and he was basically the, uh, the lead pilot in the film, and at one point, you know, Anakin shoots the shit with him. Uh, and I, I always joked that he's sort of the Captain Obvious in the movie. There it is, Coruscant. The entire planet is one big city. Right after we saw this uh, shot of the Naboo uh, starship coming in for approach on this huge city-covered fucking planet. And then we see these vast skylines and cityscapes and stuff filling up the fucking cockpit view screen. Yeah, dude, I get the idea that it's the entire planet is one big city and all these other things. So, you know, he's just, everything the guy says in the, in the movie, go back and watch it sometime. Everything that pilot says in the movie is no duh, Captain Obvious bullshit. So it's just, it's fucking weird to watch it. But anyway, yeah. My point, though, is to say that even that character who plays, when you think about it, almost no role of great significance in the movie, even he has his own action figure. I mean... The people at Lucasfilm knew what they were doing. And so I kind of have to point the finger at them and say, you know what, guys, if you feel like you got burned by the fans on this, that sucks. I'm sorry. But you kind of did it to yourself. You know, so anyway, but the, the core question you asked is, you know, it, could anything live up to that? And yes, there is. There is a movie that you could have made that 
the core fans would have embraced. Lucas just did not did not create that film, right? And so now that having been said, I mean, you know, part of me kind of understands why Lucas would uh, get such a bad taste in his mouth regarding fans and Star Wars and more Star Wars films and all this stuff. Because, I mean, we can joke about it, and it did sort of become a meme for a while in that pre-Facebook world that we lived in. You know, George Lucas raped my childhood. But just think about that for a minute. For as douchebaggy uh, an expression as that is, there were people out there who truly did feel that way. Even if they never actually used the phrase, George Lucas raped my childhood, that truly is the way that they felt. And think about that, you know? Lucas, a guy who I always got the idea he was relatively grounded, relatively down to earth, what he wanted to do ultimately, apart from make money, what he wanted to do was was make a movie that people would enjoy. And for his troubles, people called him a rapist. A rapist. I'm sorry, I've just got philosophical problems with that. I mean, I don't want to sound, you know, all PC about it, but that is way over the line of good taste. And then on top of all of that, as if that was a one-off thing, there was that fucking episode of South Park that showed... Uh, uh, George Lucas and Steven Spielberg raping Indiana Jones, and once again, there's the whole George Lucas rape thing, you know. And it's like, where the fuck is this coming from? But you know, after years of being subjected to this kind of mockery and ridicule and uh, just vitriolic hatred, honestly, anybody's going to have their breaking point. What did anybody expect? You know, I mean. I think Lucas has actually been pretty tactful and diplomatic. I mean, if it had been me, I would have cussed the fans out, given them the finger, and, uh, and I would have put Jar Jar in every single shot of episode three just to piss him off, you know? And he didn't do that. You know, he's been, with exceptions, he's actually been, you know, very, I think, mature and uh, diplomatic about the whole thing. But I really wasn't all that surprised whenever uh, word came down the pipeline that uh, Lucasfilm had been sold to Disney. I mean, yeah, Lucas has theoretically unlimited creative freedom now. He could do anything that he wants to do. This is how much... And in fact, you know, here's the thing. He hasn't even retired. He said that he was doing all this so that he could retire. He's still making movies, guys. This is how badly burned he was by Star Wars, by the fans, etc., etc., he sold his golden goose. He's still making movies. He just sold that thing that had meant more to him than anything, that one thing that he protected more closely than anything else. I just, I don't know. I mean, it was, on the one hand, it was a kick in the balls, and perhaps overdue, because I don't really think uh, Lucasfilm managed Star Wars very well, starting from about 2006 onward. But, or actually, maybe even before that, maybe even 2004. But, honestly, I, I kind of have to ask myself, you know, in his situation, what would I have done differently? And when it comes down to that, the the very honest answer has got to be not very much. So, anyway, but... 
the core, I don't know, point of your email, Prime, could anything live up to what we had expected? And I have to say yes. I mean, I realize it's kind of hypocritical of me to defend Lucas as much as I just did and then turn right around and then criticize him here. But I'm trying to be intellectually honest about it. Yes, I do believe there is a movie, a Star Wars Episode One that George Lucas could have made that people would have responded better to. He did not make that film, right? Now, I'm not saying that was done out of malice, certainly not making that argument, but I am saying he does bear responsibility. Ultimately, as at the time, he was the chief officer of Lucasfilm, he was the director, writer, producer, and I think sole financier of Star Wars Episode One: The Phantom Menace, um, he approved all of the licensing deals, all of the promotional stuff, all of the publicity, everything. We, fans, are not the ones who inflated our, our hopes and dreams to sky-high, unprecedented, unrealistic levels. All right? We did not do this. Lucas did this. And so, yeah, I truly do believe that there is a film he could have made, and through no fault of the fans... That film does not exist. And as far as the expectation uh, aspect of it is concerned, yeah, I do blame Lucas for that. So anyway, so I'm not trying to like shit on the guy or anything. I just think there's something else that he could have done. So whatever. Either way, though, uh, Prime, thank you, as always, for uh, taking the time to write in. You, uh, I don't know, I just, I always like your point of view on things. It's always very... It's always very different, very interesting, and I just, I just really enjoy it. So, um, the next email, this comes from uh, Mike Zumo, and uh, the title of it is, uh, no, it's simply episode one. So, uh, Mike writes, hey Magnus, just want to let you know I've been listening to the show pretty much since day one. I've wanted to write in a few times, but never felt strongly enough about anything to actually commit to sitting down and typing about it. I'd record my thoughts, but I'm a writer by trade and, frankly, have a voice for silent film. (laughs) Okay, all right, touche. That's fair enough. Which I'm apparently uh, famous now for saying, fair enough. Um, Anyway, to get back into, into Mike's email, though, he writes... Anyway... Episode 1 was a big deal for me as it was the first time I was going to see new Star Wars on the big screen and actually remember it. I've been told I saw Return of the Jedi in theaters, but at two years old when the film was released, I have no memory. Obviously, I saw this... Actually, you know what? Before I even get into that, I'm going to put your email on pause here, uh, Mike, and say, you know what? Dude, I'm kind of right there with you, except this, this goes back... A very long way. This is one of the earliest memories that I have. And it's apropos of absolutely nothing, except your your email sort of reminded me of it. My, my dad and my two older brothers went out to see Return of the Jedi one night. That same night, while they were at the theater, a tornado hit town. Now, originally, I was supposed to go with them to see the movie but for whatever reason it just ended up not happening I, I don't I mean forgive me I was two years old so you know these are things that you don't necessarily remember you just fucking it, it never happened right so 
tornado comes to town, and I remember that it was just me and my mom at home, and then my grandmother came over. And what I remember, just to kind of put all of this into context, was that we thought, I mean, this is how close the tornado was. We truly did think that the uh, tornado was actually going to hit the house. And so, you know, we stacked up all the cushions and stuff. And what I remember is looking out, the front door was wide open. And I remember looking out the front door, watching my mom walk out to uh, my grandmother's, or rush out, really, uh, to my grandmother's car, getting some stuff out of the car, and then they bring they, they brought it in. And then I, I also remember at one point, you know, sitting on all of these pillows and cushions and everything, and that's really about all I remember. And you know what? I was two years old, so I think that's a hell of a good recall just right then. And that really is my memory of Return of the Jedi, which is to say no memory at all. So anyway, get back into the email, though, Mike writes... Obviously, I saw the special edition releases two years earlier in theaters, but despite the changes, they were films I'd seen before. I'll come back to that. So anyway, in 1999, I was stoked to see a new Star Wars film. I remember enjoying the film, probably because I was still caught up in the experience, but I remember when it was over, I thought to myself, it put everyone where they needed to be. In essence, it fulfilled its obligation to the story. Who says that after a film? That was probably the first sign something was wrong. I'm going to put this email on pause and say, you know what, of all things, like of all reactions I remember people having to that film, and I saw many of them and I've heard even more, I saw people come out of that movie cheering their heads off. And I've also heard, and this is more anecdotal, but I've also heard uh, stories of people feeling like they just got just kicked right in the boys. You know, like, what the fuck did I just watch? And not in a good way. You know, it's like, what was that crap? But, you know, this sort of scholarly thing that you have of, well, it did what it needed to do. And being just so, I guess, clinical about it. That is a reaction I've never actually heard anybody say before. That is definitely a first in um, in uh, my experience. So, uh, I guess number one, I'm, I, I get the impression, at least, that you you weren't overly fond of the film. But, um, you know, number two, that is, uh, that, that's a hell of an astute point, actually. So, uh, good job on that one. Get back into uh, uh, Mike's email, though. Uh, he writes, But there were things that bothered me about the film from day one. I didn't quite get why people thought it was racist, quote-unquote, and I figured most of them were just regurgitating some left-wing philosophy I called them idiots and moved on. But as for the content, I guess it was different from what I expected. I sure as hell didn't expect Anakin to be nine years old until I saw a trailer, but Lucas asked too much of me in certain areas. A 14... Actually, you know what? Before we even move on to that, I'm going to put your email on pause and say, you know what? I think you and I obviously are on pretty similar pages there. I mean, I can buy like the emotional angle of a nine-year-old Anakin and, you know, his sort of character arc in that film. But there were certain more functional things that he needed to do in the plot that I just cannot buy into the idea of a nine-year-old being capable of doing. So put a pencil to it. Anyway, get back into the email. A 14-year-old queen? I I wasn't taking that seriously, and I still cringe 
when I hear Anakin ask Padme, Are you an angel? George Lucas took what was supposed to be this great romance and made it creepy. Not that episode two did the romance any favors. I'm going to put the email back on pause and just, number one, reiterate what I said to Tom Panneries. When my episode two show comes out, I kind of hope you write in on that one, too, because I'd be interested to hear what you hear your angle on my angle of the love story in Attack of the Clones. But as to the idea of a 14-year-old queen, the idea of extremely young royalty in history, I don't think is actually all that unusual. I mean, I could buy into the idea of a 14-year-old of royalty. So, no, that's actually, that much I actually find easy to believe. So, uh, if you don't, that's cool. Uh, certainly, I'm not picking on you. I just, I'm just saying that I find it actually very easy to, uh, to believe. So, get back into the email, though. When I left the theater, I felt like I'd watched a prologue. A feeling that was confirmed when episodes two and three seemed to connect better with this, with this film hanging off in left field by itself. I'm going to put the email back on pause and say, dude, you just keep raising up all these good points. One question I've got for you, though, is are you familiar with the machete order of the Star Wars saga, where you basically just completely skip episode one altogether, and you, and you just go through the whole thing? Episodes two and three, Star Wars, Empire, and Jedi... Like, are you are, are you familiar with that? Um, I ask because I'd be interested to hear what your thoughts are on that. You know, just let me know what you think. So, get back into the email. There were things I liked. Darth Maul, and any time Ian McDermott was on screen. He was the true star of the prequels, in my opinion. And I must admit to being wowed by the, la the lightsaber battles, since the original films didn't have anything remotely close on a physical level. I'm going to put the email back on pause and say, as far as e uh, Ian McDermott is concerned, yeah, he was... Hey, you know what? Uh, I don't think I've ever mentioned this before, but I was actually watching the film in theaters, and I was, this entire time, trying to figure out just where the fuck I knew... This Palpatine guy from... I mean, I knew that actor from something. And it actually took me a while. It was kind of, duh. It was sort of a slap-over-the-head type of moment. But I realized I recognized him as the Emperor from Return of the Jedi. And I, needless to say, felt like a complete idiot. But, I don't know. I just I really enjoyed Ian McDermott in the movie. I thought it was just tons of fun. And he really did play the sort of dual role of Palpatine and Sidious. I, he just played it to, uh, to the T's. So, um, very good. Very amazing actor. Now, uh, as to the lightsaber battles, you know, I'm kind of of two minds on that because I always felt like, you know, if the Jedi were really capable of that type of extreme combat, you know, just on a physical level, you know, I realize that there were technological and just sort of practical real, uh, uh, limitations that the uh, that the original trilogy just had to work within. I don't know, though. I mean, it just felt like maybe it was going to be too much. I don't know. So, whatever. Ultimately, you know, the prequels, that you know, they are their own thing. But it does, if nothing else, create now a precedent for something other than what we saw in the original trilogy. And one of the fears that I've got is that the new trilogy is going to have 
I don't know, something that's just so completely foreign to what I associate with Star Wars. I don't know. I'm, you know, I probably shouldn't shouldn't judge the prequels based on what they could possibly lead to in the hands of other other creative types. It's just, I don't know, just something to be aware of, I guess. Anyway, uh, let's see. Get back into the movie, though. Most of the fighting between Luke and Vader was mental. This movie, which is to say episode one, this movie was my first exposure to Liam Neeson, another bright spot in the film. I would come to enjoy Ewan McGregor as Obi-Wan, but in this film, he had little to do until the end. Put the email back on pause and say, yeah, that's actually kind of one of my gripes about The Phantom Menace as well, is that it, you know, you have a fairly talented actor like Ewan McGregor in the movie, and he's just kind of sitting there twiddling his thumbs for most of it. I mean, if he'd played sort of a more prominent role in the movie, if he had lines other than, yes, master, um, or hell, here's an idea. Like when the when the gang lands on Tatooine, if it had been Obi-Wan who went into uh, Mos Espa and ended up finding Anakin and all that stuff and was responsible for recruiting him you know, into the Jedi, that would have worked for me. But the fact that Qui-Gon ended up kind of replacing Obi-Wan in The Phantom Menace as sort of the anchor character, you know, the familiar character that, you know, that we knew from the uh, original trilogy, I just felt like that was, number one, it was just wrong-headed in terms of, you know, telling the story in a way that connects Obi-Wan to Anakin. But, I don't know, it just, it felt like it was, it was just a waste of, of uh, Ewan McGregor, so, whatever. Get back into uh, Mike's email, though, he writes, but overall, this was not how I wanted to see Star Wars return after 16 years, and while the other two prequel films were better, this got them off to a very poor start and saddled the prequel trilogy with a reputation it would never recover from. Signed, Mike. And dude, I agree with that. I can't help but think if... If the only prequels that fans got truly were Attack of the Clones and Revenge of the Sith, I kind of wonder, actually, how... You know, what the prevailing sentiment regarding these movies would be, because... You know, so much of what, uh, of the, I guess, anti-prequel sentiment that you see out there on the internet relates so specifically back to uh, The Phantom Menace. It just, it, it, it does actually kind of make me wonder. So, anyway. Moving on to the next email. The final one, in fact. This is episode, the title of it is Episode 99 Concerning Episode 1. Sent by my friend Doug Meacham. He writes... Greetings, Exalted One. I recently listened to the commentary for Episode 1 with George Lucas and various production members. In it, George reveals that the midi-chlorians were in his original backstory, but chose to focus on the spiritual aspect of the Force for the original trilogy. And Doug, I'm putting your email on pause here and saying... You know, Lucas says a whole lot of things were always part of his original story treatments and story scripts and outlines and all these other bullshit. And... When it comes to things like, you know, Vader being Luke's father or Leia being Luke's uh, sister, I just don't buy it. I'm sorry. I think the guy's so full of shit it comes out of his ears. Now, again, I just spent quite a while, quite a long time, just a while ago, um, defending Lucas, so I don't want to look like I'm a hypocrite and I'm going back on that. I'm just trying to be realistic about it. The guy's full of shit. 
on certain things. And so we as a fan base just need to acknowledge that. Now, when it comes to the midichlorians, I could actually half-ass see that. A moment ago I mentioned that back in Return of the Jedi, it's very heavily implied that the Force is a hereditary trait. And so it's not really a stretch to think that that idea could have somehow evolved into the midichlorians, but I just don't believe him when he says that midichlorians were part of his original outline from the get-go. I'm sorry, Lucas, your credibility with me on these things just is not very good. So I kind of do have a sort of put-up-or-shut-up attitude about it. I mean, look, if he's got documentation that can prove it, if he's willing to share it, I'll believe it. Until then, though, I mean, my attitude about it really is guilty until proven innocent. So, not trying to be a dick about it, just trying to be realistic here. So, anywho. Uh, getting back into Doug's email, though, he writes, I point this out because I've heard people complain over the years that this was an unnecessary and confusing plot point. But I believe it plays well, given the strong concept of symbiosis in the first film. I'm going to put the email back on pause and say, you know what, dude? I agree with that. I think it actually does add a whole lot of uh, the uh, thematic reinforcement to, I guess, the uh, the larger scheme of things of The Phantom Menace. Yeah, it plays very well into that. But I just balk at the idea that Lucas had midichlorians specifically in mind back in 1975. I just, I'm sorry, I just don't buy it. So I'm not bashing on you or anything. I'm just saying I I just don't believe it. I'm sorry. So, anyway, getting back into Doug's email, though, he writes, Also, for those who want a great, uh, greater appreciation for the prequel trilogy, I suggest they read the article called Star Wars Ring Theory, which is found at StarWarsRingTheory.com. I'm going to put this email back on pause and say, You know what, dude? Fucking good idea. For those of you who don't know what he's talking about, StarWarsRingTheory.com is basically an analysis of the entire Star Wars saga, which is to say all six of the movies, right? Because obviously The Force Awakens hasn't come out yet, and I doubt it'll fit into the Ring storytelling. But it basically analyzes all six of the movies through the prism of Ring storytelling. Now, you might ask yourself, if, if you don't already know, what exactly is Ring storytelling? What is Ring theory? And very honestly, it's one of those things, it's, actually, it's incredibly hard to explain. People can understand it conceptually, but verbally it can be a little difficult to explain, but I shall do my best. Basically, ring storytelling is what... It's a style of, of uh, telling a story, and Lucas has even kind of alluded to this on a few occasions when he talks about how things rhyme with one another and all that. He doesn't mean it in, in the sense of a verbal rhyme. He means that the stories will, re, will sort of just reinforce certain elements with one another. And there's a degree to which that's kind of undeniable. A good example is the asteroid chase from The Empire Strikes Back and the kind of sort of similar sequence that we see in um, Attack of the Clones. They are not shot-for-shot shot remakes of one another, but you can't really escape how similar they are to one another. And so ring storytelling is that type of thing, but it's more than just that. It actually follows the same structures 
as uh, other stories in your saga, your cycle, your series, whatever you're calling it, you follow the same the same storytelling structures. You reverse the storytelling structures. You even on the most innocuous of things, you are constantly echoing or reinforcing something that the viewer has already seen previously. And so I hope that makes sense, that basically concepts that you see in Star Wars, you see again, except in reverse, in Return of the Jedi. And then maybe you see them again in The Phantom Menace, but this time they're going forward again, but now there are different emphases at play. Ring storytelling. It's an incredibly elaborate, incredibly intricate way of telling a story, but you you cannot escape the fact that there is so much similarity between the six main, the six George Lucas, I guess, Star Wars films. You cannot deny that on some level or another, the ring storytelling aspect of the films doesn't hold up. It's just, it's just not true. And so um, I guess a, a good example of what I mean is how Star Wars begins with that huge shot of uh, the Star Destroyer passing right over the camera. Well, and The Empire Strikes Back ends with this shot of that, uh, rep, that huge rebel ship also passing right over the camera. Ring storytelling. It ends the way it began. It began the way it ended, you know? That sort of uh, visual and thematic reinforcement of the story using perhaps different story elements, but at the same, but, but at every step of the way, similar visuals. And so what you end up with is this weird juxtaposition of characters in, fam- in like unfamiliar characters in familiar situations or familiar visuals, familiar colors, familiar aesthetics, but in completely new uh, settings and circumstances. But at every step of the way, there's always this sort of symmetry between the story elements at, at various points in the saga. And again, a, a good one is how Star Wars begins with that huge Imperial Star Destroyer flying over the camera, and how The Empire Strikes Back ends with a huge rebel ship flying right over the camera. You know, it's ring storytelling. They, they are opposing one another. So... Anyway, it's just, um, it's one of those things that I found, I didn't read the entire essay, because it's just so long, it's like, uh, I don't know, it's at least 15 pages long, there's just so much stuff in there, but I just, at the same time though, I find it so easy to believe, and to me this is one of those things that, it, it almost defies how poorly received, by at least by some people, the prequels were. You cannot argue the craftsmanship that went into uh, into making those films. So, Doug, thank you for mentioning that because that was an incredibly good catch on your part. So, anyway, to get back into Doug's email, since this is supposed to be about him, he writes, George describes his films as musical movements consisting of repetitive themes. This article does a good job of pointing out those themes used in a storytelling process called ring composition. And again, Doug is completely right about that. I'm eagerly looking forward to episode 100, and your thoughts on Smallville's Season 3. You mean, Doug, you mean the mighty Season 3. Recognize. As always, good luck with the show. Your loyal subject, Doug Meacham. So, Doug, thank you very much for uh, taking the time to write in with all of your encouragement. And also for mentioning the ring 
uh, storytelling aspect, dude, I had completely friggin' forgotten about that. So thank you for catching that and uh, correcting me on it, because I truly don't think I would have ever thought to mention that. So uh, if nothing else positive come uh, came out of all of this, and believe me, a lot of positive stuff has and will, but if nothing else did, that one suggestion you just made is uh, definitely worth remembering. And again, uh, for those of you who are interested in checking it out, that's Star Wars Ring Theory, T-H-E-O-R-Y, StarWarsRingTheory.com. Go ahead and check it out. It's worth reading. It's a little bit stuffy. It's kind of, you know, highfalutin intellectual. But um, I truly do believe that there's there's a whole lot of mojo to that idea of uh, Lucas telling this as a sort of ring storyline. So you guys just take a look at it. You be the judge. So uh, that is pretty much it this week. That's pretty much the end of my all of my comments and all of my listeners' comments concerning uh, Star Wars Episode One: The Phantom Menace. Now, if you still want to send something in and just share your thoughts, uh, feel free to do so. Obviously, I can't include it in this show now, but uh, feel free to do so. I can read it in some future show, and uh, just whatever you feel like saying. If, hell, if all you need to do is just vent after all these years, you just need to get all this bullshit off your chest, well... Uh, feel free, you know, you're you're welcome to do so. As to next week, obviously I'm going to be finally getting into my epic, epic, epic episode 100. And just to kind of give you a little bit of a sneak preview of it, the idea that I, that I sort of went into with episode 100 was back in the 90s, there was this sort of de rigueur thing where rock bands or, or really any kind of musician they would release these very swanky, very high-end boxed sets of their studio material. And invariably, you'd get things like live performances, or you'd get demos, or just all of these sort of odds and ends. And that's kind of the idea that I went into with episode 100. Basically wanted to talk about the history of this show, what went right, what went wrong, things that maybe could have turned out better, and also things that I don't think turned out especially well, and so as a result, you never heard them. Well, you're going to hear them next week, so that's certainly something to look forward to, assuming that's your idea of a good time. So if you want to hear all just kinds of wackiness that I intentionally kept from you, by all means, uh, you know, it's been... 100 episodes, and I gotta tell you, it's it's been a crazy ride. So I'd just like to thank all of you who wrote in specifically for this episode, all of you who have written in for any episode I've ever done, and also, just in general, all of you who have listened, taken the time to welcome me into your home, or onto your iPod, onto your iPhone, or what, however it is that you listen to this show, into iTunes, however you do it. Thank you for listening because you guys are ultimately the reason that I'm here. So thank you very much. Appreciate all of, uh, all of your attention, your feedback, your Facebook posts, all of it. It, it really does uh, help a lot. And I hope you enjoy episode 100 as I crack open the vaults and I let you listen to a bunch of stuff that I thought was too scary, too boring, too unfunny, possibly actionable. All of those things that you never got to hear when they were first recorded. Go ahead and take a look. Give it a listen. Let me know what you think. Also, if you have any thoughts or anything like that that you want to share concerning episode 100, 
I may still be able to squeeze that in. So, uh, you know, may as well go for broke. Go ahead and send me an email if you'd like. Uh, you can uh, type a message in your email or you can record uh, a message if you'd like. Just try to keep it a little bit short so there will be time for everybody. But otherwise, thanks all of you for listening to me. And I'll see you next week for episode 100. Okay, so I think that's just about the end of that. Trentus Magnus Punches Reality is a proud member of the Two True Freaks podcast network. You can find the home for Trentus Magnus Punches Reality at twotruefreaks.com, which is spelled T-W-O-T-R-U-E-F-R-E-A-K-S. You can also find it on Facebook just by searching for Trentus Magnus Punches Reality. There you can interact with your fellow listeners and also see notifications of new episodes when I put them up. You can friend me on Facebook by searching for Trentus Magnus, which is spelled T-R-E-N-T-U-S-S-M-A-G-N-U-S-S. You can email me and my parole officer at TrentusMagnus at gmail.com, which is spelled T-R-E-N-T-U-S-M-A-G-N-U-S. Do you have a suggestion for a topic? Feel free to email me. And I might consider thinking about the possibility of potentially discussing whatever you have in mind someday. And that's a promise. Did you know? You can sponsor any episode of this or any other of your favorite Two True Freaks affiliated shows. That's right. Simply click the PayPal link, donate any amount at all, tell us which show you're choosing and what message, if any, you'd like us to read on your behalf, and you will be an official sponsor of that show's very next episode. With your message read in the show's opener, it's that easy, and there's no minimum donation. Be a show sponsor today. If you shop at Amazon.com, please consider using the link at 2TrueFreaks.com to shop there. If you use this link to go to Amazon and then you shop, 2TrueFreaks gets a cut of what you buy. It doesn't cost you anything extra, and it really helps the freaks out. You get to shop as usual and help out the two true freaks at the same time. Do you have a podcast of your own? If so, why not record a promo for me to play on my show? It's quick, easy, and can help you spread the word about your show. I'm always looking for more promos to play. Keep it fairly short, and yours could be next. My promos can be found at this show's homepage for those interested. Just look for the promo section. The contents of this podcast are fictitious, hypothetical, and probably completely unnecessary. Any similarity to living persons or real-life events is purely coincidental and void where prohibited by law, some assembly required, batteries not included. Trentus Magnus Punches Reality is a Magnus Media Enterprises Limited production in association with Demonsacor of Milan, Italy. In a time of change, 
a young man holds in his hands the fire of a dying age. To take the step from student to master, he must trust himself to stand alone.